Hi, I'm Emily Roger, host of the Boiling Point Podcast. My co-host, Dave Vale, and I will bring you thoughtful discussions with leaders who are positively impacting our world. This is The Boiling Point, where leadership and inspiration meet. Hello, Dave. We're back for another episode. And I'm, I'm well, it's two weeks later and I'm wearing the same outfit. <laughs> So, you know, I was actually I was actually thinking as I was getting ready for this about the uh, conversation we had with Dr. Dana last time about healthy habits. And um, I think one healthy habits is changing your clothes. I got to work on that. Clearly, <laughs> it's only been two hours. Honestly, people, I think, know that. <laughs> then I was thinking, I want some of Dave's healthy habits are. I want some my healthy habits. You probably know my unhealthy habits. Oh, your healthy habits. Yeah. Well, exercise. I've talked about that. I, that's a healthy habit. Meditation, I think, is a healthy habit that I, I've got some pretty good discipline around. And actually, you know, it's, it's and I, I probably just grew up this way. I, my parents were not full-blown hippies, but kind of hippies, you know? And so we we always ate like super healthy. And so I just had that really good upbringing. I remember being on an airplane and as a kid and person in front of me, you know, kind of kindly passing back candies. And I just was like, no. And they were shocked. It's easy habit to have. What about you? I make my bed every single morning. As far as eating, yeah, I definitely eat a very healthy diet. Well, actually, I eat a can of sardines a day and have for probably the last, I would say seven years, eight years, maybe. Every day. Yeah. It's actually my favorite food. (laughs) Well, besides hamburgers. Um, (laughs) But no, I love sardines and it just like, it's a good thing that they are healthy because I would probably eat them regardless. But yeah, the same as you exercise and like movement and just kind of staying active. Yeah. It's funny. You talk about the no sugar. My, my nieces, they call it sugar ban of like, cause they eat very healthy as well. And when they like, if we're at the cottage or there's like treats around and stuff and they're 11 and 14 years old. And they're like, okay, we got to go a sugar band. Like this is too much. (laughs) Like they can feel the changes in their body from it. You know, the one other one I would add as a father, and it's it's different with a 16 year old boy, but he, he's fine with it. Very different than I was 16 and the relationship I may had with my father, but I just want to say, I love them every day, you know, as my, and sometimes I'm pissed off at them for not whatever, but I just want to make sure that's just something that we, you know, we always acknowledge and it's okay to be frustrated, but it doesn't, you know, we obviously love each other. And I think verbalizing it's for me really helpful. So that's, uh, and I never thought about it till just now, but, but uh, it was a kind of a conscious decision to not stop that at a certain age where it's uncool or whatever. So I love how you open it. So now next one I open in terms of a podcast, I've got to have a, a really good question. So you're, you're raising the bar once again, Emily. Well, it's interesting you bring up your dad. I was actually thinking about your dad this afternoon. And uh, he is, I mean, you both are healthy looking men. You can just, you tell, you can tell that you, and I, I mean, I know you, but, uh, and your dad, but you can just tell that you both take care of yourself, both physically, but also like mentally and emotionally, and just how that does really portray. Yeah. Well, you know what? He, I'll pass that along because, I mean, of course, you met him. We interviewed him a year ago, whatever it was, and talked about the mediation work he does and, you know, different type of, you know, resolving disputes. Of course, the term I'm, I'm not coming up with, but I got a, a video of him just the other day. So big shout out to Ron of doing push-ups with his two grandson on a dock, my uh, brother's uh, dock at their cottage. And he's 78. My nephews will kill me saying this, but I believe Ron did more push-ups than them than they did. And I thought to myself, 
that's a good role model. Like I, I want when I'm 78, I want to be doing, I want to be doing push-ups. Like, like he's Love it. good, you know. So he will really appreciate that comment, Emily. So very, very kind of you. Amazing. So our guest today, Dr. Matt Harrison, we have woke him up bright and early. He is, I guess, coming in from Melbourne, Australia. So Matt, welcome to the boiling point and good morning. Good morning, Emily. Good morning, Dave. Very nice to be here. And speaking of like 5 a.m., I mean, what time did you get up to, to, to 4.30 or did you just roll out of bed? Because you're looking you're looking fabulous, man. Oh, thank you, Dave. Yeah, 4.30. I uh, gave myself a half, half hour buffer. So you pump back the coffee and... Yeah, speaking of healthy habits, I did make sure I went to bed at a reasonable hour last night. So I thought I'd at least get some, some sleep. But uh, it's wonderful to be here. Well, okay. And before we even get into your uh, intro, we'll have you chime in on that uh, on that conversation. What are some of your healthy habits? I see you have a bike in the background, so I know you've got some healthy habits. Uh, the sleep one's actually something that I've been trying to really consciously do. I was, I was listening to you both speak. And I thought, yeah, I think the sleep has been one of those things where over the last year or two, I know I need at least seven hours. So just trying to schedule around my life around so I can be in bed sort of by 11 p.m. But it's not always easy because there's so many great things happening. You can uh, try to squeeze in too much into your day. You do you do suffer for it in the long run. It's not sustainable. But so the sleep the sleep patterns, consistent sleep patterns, has been a big one for me. Which is so important. It's funny you say that because that's I remember I was wearing a Fitbit. And our, our young, we have three kids. Our youngest was a little more challenging as an infant. And I, I took the Fitbit off finally because I was like averaging like four and a half hours of sleep a night over this like month period. And I was like, I don't even want to know like that because this is not because sometimes I wake up, I think, I think I felt slept okay. And then I'd look at my watch and they would tell me how I should feel. And I was like, this is crazy. How do I feel like, you know what I mean? But, uh, but yeah, so consciously tried to do the same thing. That's really interesting. I've heard a lot of people have done that, Dave, have taken off their Apple Watches at night and those sort of things, just because that not knowing, you can kind of tell yourself that, yeah, you know what, I had a great night's sleep. Then you actually look at the data and you're like, actually, I had a miserable night's sleep and it ruined my day, <laughs> started of my day looking at that. Yeah. You know, you know the, other, the other example I would give is like, I've never done my IQ test because I don't want to know. Like if I'm part, I, this is how I am. If it's like 80, like, okay, what am I going to do about it? So I'd rather just not know, pretend it's like 115 or something like that. Well, I don't think I've ever done it. Now I think about it, Dave, I don't think I've ever done it either. So it's a, yeah, we share a philosophy there. <laughs> yeah. So it's, you've come as a guest from our production manager, Amanda, whose name just escaped me for a second there. And I understand she, she told us that you guys met teaching abroad and, uh, and we were having a quick conversation before this about Korea. And I remember visiting my brother, who was actually, I mentioned earlier, who was teaching in Korea. And uh, I wasn't participating in a lot of healthy habits when I was visiting. We go to Itaewon and all these places. And it was, it was pretty wild time teaching abroad. For, and I, I was just, I was on the outside looking in. I was just trying to imagine being on the inside of that. Yeah, look, I had a wonderful year there. I think it was 2000 and I don't know, years keeps passing on. It was 2007, 2008, because they follow the American or North American school year. And it's one of those things you look back and you think it was a different time and place and I was a much younger person. So my healthy habits probably were slipping 
a lot more. They can get away with it more being younger. There's definitely uh, less exercise. That's one thing I can think of straight away. But yeah, it was wonderful. It, South Korea is an amazing country. And I think we we're there at a period of time where it wasn't quite the explosion of like Samsung and LG and the super companies didn't quite have the prevalence that they do in Australian society and obviously probably Canadian society as well. But I think, yeah, it's one of those points in my life where it was really pivotal in, in helping me understand what I wanted to do and, and, what, and where I wanted to be, you know, five years later. Yeah. And so speaking of that, I feel like you're the type of person that we could have no introduction. And even though we all just met, we could carry on a conversation for the next few hours. <laughs> oh, thank you. I think so. <laughs> what a beautiful segue. Go for it, Emily. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Who are you? <laughs> That's right. Introduction. It's a good point. I just completely forgot about that. So yeah, Dr. Harrison, that's how we were introduced to you. You're a teacher, a researcher, a digital creator, like a whole long list. So for Dave and I and for our listeners, let's uh, let's hear your intro of, of yourself. So yeah, I'm, I'm a teacher first and foremost, and I, I have really been lucky to be able to work with kids right across in Australia, South Korea, the UK. And my area of real interest and passion is how we can use digital technologies to facilitate inclusive education. So I accidentally became a teacher. I uh, started off in the policy side, uh, working uh, within Vietnam, actually. I was on placement at 15 May School in Vietnam completing my Bachelor of International Studies at Deakin University in Australia. And I thought, oh, it's great. I've got six months, the final semester of my course in Ho Chi Minh City. And I was working in a school that was funded by our Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade in Australia. And it was a school for kids who were homeless or for kids whose families couldn't support them. And both my parents were teachers and they warned me please don't go into teaching, do anything else. So I said, oh, look, I really enjoy, um, I really like, I really, international development's a real passion of mine and seeing how we could, I guess, work with countries in Southeast Asia to better support, I guess, their development and what we could learn is probably quite a naive view. Got placed in a, a this government-funded facility and then from, I began uh, working on fundraising and communications and, all, and, and a whole lot of policy work as well. And I got asked to cover a class when uh, one of the English teachers was sick in the school. I said, yeah, I can do this. You know, I'll, I'll give it a go. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And so <laughs> I started taking a lot more classes on my placement and doing a lot less policy work. And then I, I made the phone call to my folks, my parents back in Australia and said, oh, I'm actually going to become a teacher. I think I'm going to come home and, and study to do my diploma of teaching. And from there on, I, I was lucky enough to be able to travel and work. And I really wanted to see how we could create more inclusive schools. And that, that's what got me interested in my research area. Is there a certain age in teaching that you are in right now or what's? Well, it's interesting. I, I started off in primary and then I taught year 11 and 12, the other end. So that's 17, 18 year olds. And then when I came home, I traveled and, and taught for a number of years. When I came home, I came home with this idea of doing my PhD. I was invited to the University of Melbourne to do my doctorate and exploring the ideas of how we can use technology, and particularly gaming, as, as ways to create inclusive spaces. 
And at the same time, I had a part-time position working at a special development school. And that's a school type of school in my state in, in Australia for kids with more complex communication needs manifesting from disability. So at the same time I was doing my PhD, I was working in a school with kids right from six years old to 18 year, year, years old who had disabilities or neurological differences. And that really was exciting because it changed my teaching forever, I think. It really and it changed my perspective for life, I think, in, in terms of how of a, our, our social responsibility to, to supporting people who do have disability or, or neurological differences. And it's, it's sort of really shaped my, my research and it's shaped my, my teaching of adults, by training teachers to work with kids with disability and neurological differences. And it's one of those experiences where I didn't expect it, but I'm forever grateful that I had that chance and opportunity. I'm, you know, I'm looking at the uh, video game behind you and that, that would be my era, you know what I mean? In terms of, I'm, I'm guessing I'm a few years older than you, but like we go to the arcade when you start plugging the uh, quarters in Miss Pac-Man or Galactica, Battleship Galactica, I think it was called. I can't remember, but um, you know, all these games and, and, uh, and I remember just loving them. And my, my friend, his father owned this big arcade. And then, and then as that kind of evolved, I mean, I remember kids would play at home and then I kind of got out of it. Just, I don't know why I wasn't maybe really super involved, but I kind of enjoyed a Saturday afternoon, sort of if it was rainy going to, to arcades. And then, and then I mentioned earlier, my kids and my son and a lot of young kids love gaming. But what I noticed about gaming is it's, it's a lot more social than it would have been, you know, in the eighties, as an example, because uh, there was no internet. I, I've had to reluctantly, you know, and I say that probably because I just don't have enough knowledge, you know, acknowledge that, you know, it's, it's actually a really, it's a, it's a great tool for bringing people together. So I love how you're incorporating that. So, you know, were you a gamer yourself, like the evolution of how games are being used? Like what, what, what are your thoughts on all that, Matt? Yeah. So I think that's a really great observation, Dave, is that gaming is just become a real social thing. I, I grew up playing games and that's how I really connected with my younger brother was we had, and I, I'm, <laughs> I'm turning the big four zero next year. So I was born in 1984. So yeah, happy birthday, Emily. Yeah, although I'm this year. I've, I've got one year on you. Dude, yeah. Happy birthday. Anyway, um, <laughs> but we had 286 computer. So for people who are a bit younger, that is one of those big bulky monitors, a computer, one keyboard, and we lived across the road from our school. So you'd have about 30 kids in our house with one computer playing games. And, and I was thinking back, when I was working with some of the students, both in, in mainstream primary and secondary school and then working in the special development school, I did begin to think, how did I develop a lot of my social competencies or capabilities? And where did I develop skills like turn-taking and, and you know, checking for understanding and using my voice to give instructions? And it was really quite pivotal, that, that, that moment where you realised a lot of it was actually us taking turns while playing this old computer with all these kids around and, and practicing giving oral instructions and, and nonverbal instructions. And I think it was one of those things where you kind of realize, okay, your observation, Dave, this is a social experience. How can I leverage this as an area of strength and interest for a lot of the kids right around the world that I've worked with to be able to make sure that I can support them in developing and practicing collaborative problem solving skills and, uh, teamwork skills and things like that as a tool. That's how I really became interested in this idea of gaming for good or using gaming to, to build social capability. 
amazing. But you know, what's interesting is your experience was like pre-internet, but like you were early days, man. You were like, wait, you know, my kids are, and actually, you know, speaking with educators, their mother's an educator. So they, they have the good fortune of having, you know, good foundational skills. So they're academically, they do quite well. And uh, we're all locked in our houses and I would go, go in and they're supposed to be online schooling and my son would be gaming, right? With his buddies. And I couldn't say anything. Like I was like, because his, his marks are like well beyond what I would have ever done. So that's number one. And number two is I'm just so happy he's socializing with his his buddies because it was a time where we're, you know, you were bubbled and all this kind of thing. So, but your experience was out of proximity to a school, it sounds like, as part of, you know, how that came about. Yeah. So personally, gaming yeah, was really a pivotal moment in terms of that social development for, for me and, and for my brother. And then as a teacher, I actually initially shied away from it for the reason you described, Dave. It's the idea of like that maybe it's not a good good idea to have this in our schools or our classrooms. And it wasn't really what I grew up with as a as a student seeing in classrooms. So as teachers, we're not supposed to encourage this. So it's part of my my interest and personality that I, I largely initially hid away from my students. But I was working, it's probably my second year of teaching in Melbourne. I had a group of, of students and some of them were autistic. Uh, some of them had other neurodivergences and some were just uh, kids who were just at risk of disengaging from school. And I realized that most of them were, were gamers and they love gaming culture and school wasn't really meeting their needs. And so I started a Friday afternoon gaming club and it was a really nice chance initially for me to build relationships and then to connect with this group of students and make school somewhere they want to be and they, they did struggle with unstructured play at lunchtimes. So the rule, the, the, the rule, the guidelines were that if you could stay in the yard without being exited Monday to Thursday, oh, you know, Mr. Harrison, or Matt will play games with you Friday lunchtime. And we focused on cooperative games we had to work together. And what I noticed was this group of students could demonstrate these social capabilities, and problem solving skills in this context whether they couldn't show it in physical education or, or they really struggled to share the tape dispenser in art class. And I thought, what is it about these games? And that's really how I got into the PhD pathway. I was like, I really want to explore and better understand how we can leverage how we're using these cooperative video games as tools for social inclusion and, and, and for developing these um, social capabilities. Wow, Matt, that's fascinating. And it actually, like, to no surprise to our listeners and Dave's, like, makes me emotional to think of, like, I, I've i never been around many games. I don't play video games. I didn't, I mean, other than, like, old school Nintendo kind of thing. But just around this thing about how, yeah, video games do bring people together and that community and the ability for that to be able to create social skills where I think that like I've maybe always had this narrow-minded approach that it's doing the total opposite. Yeah and I think it's one of those things where gaming communities can be wonderful support networks like the example you provided of your Sunday but earlier but also they can of course be toxic communities as well and I think it when I explain to parents or explain to policymakers or leaders in the in you know around the world around this area, it's always the analogy of of sport is what I also grew up playing as well. And you can have really healthy locker room cultures, and you can have some really terrible locker room cultures. And some of the hockey and football locker rooms I were in were really healthy, 
as a young man and some of them were less less than ideal in terms of the values and I guess tones of conversation being had and just in terms of who's included and who's excluded. Uh, and so I thought, okay, let's reposition this as rather than games being good or bad, saying games being used for what purpose and under what conditions and how can we create these healthy cultures? During lockdown, we had a really similar experience with a lot of uh, autistic students in Australia. And I work with a wonderful charity called Yellow Ladybugs, which is for autistic girls and women. And we ran a Minecraft server because a lot of these girls and young women and, and, and people who are non-binary were missing their friends. They were missing that social connection of those those playground or lunchtime connections during online schooling. But also parents wanted to make sure that their, their young people were on safe servers. And this was in Melbourne had a very long lockdown or series of lockdowns compared to other um, cities and, and countries around the world. So we set up this server, Yellowcraft, and it's still running. It's a whitelist Minecraft server. If your listeners aren't familiar with Minecraft, it's like virtual Lego, but we hired young adults who were autistic to actually run it and to facilitate it for children and young adults. And it's been a wonderful mentoring network. And it's based off some really seminal work from a Canadian, actually, Stuart Duncan, who's in Ontario, who set up Ortcraft, which is the world's largest dedicated Minecraft server for autistic people. We thought, let's, let's create a server just for local autistic girls and women. And it became a real support network for these young people during this long period of lockdown. I think it was, we had 270 something days of being locked down. It was, I think it was the world record. I think maybe Argentina had passed us at some point, but yes, it was a long time. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. 4Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at 4Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. So you were doing a bit of a social experiment in your in the school where you, you'd say if you can you know, not stay in this cool ground between Monday and Thursday, you get to play games on Friday. And did you set it up as research or you just set it up just more out of curiosity? No, at, at the time, I wasn't in the research field at all. I was, yeah, full-time teacher in a school. And I was like, oh, these kids need something. And it's an area of strength and interest. I did have some initial raised eyebrows from some of my colleagues but I, I ran it past our principal and I got the okay. I had a wonderful principal who was at the very end of her career. She was 70 something about to go into retirement. So you'd think if you're using, you know, sort of ageist sort of uh, mentality, you think, oh, maybe that's someone who would not be into, into gaming, but straight away said, great idea. What do you need? 
<laughs> and when I tell colleagues that oh, the principal said it's fine, they were surprised that it's approved. But I think what connects most teachers, or I'd say I think every teacher, is your care for your students, whether they're six years old or 16 years old. If you can position something and provide evidence or some, some, at least some research that's going to have a positive impact on these young people, uh, to the credit of my colleagues who are initially cynical, they said, okay, let's give it a go. And just a follow-up to that, I'd love to talk about Next Level Collaboration, right, which you co-founded. You told the story for a reason. I'm sure this initial work as a teacher and your experience must have informed or, or partially informed Next Level Collaboration. Would that be, would that be a fair statement? Absolutely is fair. That's exactly where it started was this working with these group of students who are now probably in their 20s. <laughs> if they're listening, hello to my ex-students. I, I really wanted to understand what it was about that, that Friday afternoon gaming club that seemed to be so effective with this group of students and how could I make it better and how, what could we learn from this in terms of how we run schools and how we support students who have been historically marginalised. So it's not just students who are neurodivergent, students with mental health challenges or students who, for whatever reason, had histories of trauma. And how could we use this as, as making school a more meaningful place for them? And so I was lucky enough to be invited to the University of Melbourne to do my research. And um, original supervisor, PhD supervisor said, oh, hey, would you mind teaching a class for me? And I said, oh, look, I can teach a, a Tuesday night teacher education class as well as teaching, you know, my school and, and my, my school and doing my PhD. And then he went on sick leave, ended up taking over accidentally all his teaching load, training teachers, as well as doing my, uh, my PhD and teaching in the school. I became an accidental uh, academic through that process. But as I completed my PhD and, and looked at my research, I really wanted to get it out there. And so we have a wonderful program called Translating Research at Melbourne, which lets you take your doctoral research and actually use it to start something, to, to start a, a startup. The very first session, they said, it's a really lonely journey, the startup scene, if you do it by yourself. So you need to have a, a, someone to work with. And just as one of those moments that was, you know, chance or fate, like two days before, one of my colleagues, had introduced me to Jess Rowlings, who may be listening to this podcast. And Jess has really cool, bright red hair, uh, like fluoro bright, purple, red, multicolored hair, and has you know an ink sleeve of Legend of Zelda tattoos. And she's a re- she was a research assistant on my floor, but we had nothing to do with each other. But she just heard that I had a Super Nintendo in my office at, at Melbourne Uni, so she wanted to come and see it. And we got chatting. And she mentioned that she was autistic. And I realized I, if I was going to work with the autistic community and, and try to start something up for the autistic community, you need that lived experience. You need that voice. She's also a speech pathologist, so she had complementary skills. So I emailed her out of the blue saying, this is wild, I know. And please feel free to say, no, thanks. And please don't contact me ever again. I said, do you want to come and do this translating research at Melbourne program with me? And look at how we can start use my doctoral research and your lived experience, start up something that will transform these social groups that are being run in schools in, in Melbourne and then, you know, hopefully nationally. And three years down the track, we're still on that journey. So probably for context for your listeners, 
quick one sentence summary is we are a social enterprise that run co-op gaming groups to build social capacity for people who are neurodivergent. So that's people who are autistic or have ADHD or other neurological differences. And our social mission is to hire as many young people who are neurodivergent to run the programs. And, and so that's really where a neurodivergent led organization, Jess is our CEO. And we really want to transform how we are running what used to be called what we used to term social skills groups. So back in your beginner days of teaching and kind of implementing this way of teaching, are you still in contact with any, any of those students who are now in their 20s and into the workforce? I wasn't. And then one added me on LinkedIn. I was so surprised. You see the photo forever stuck in my mind as a, as a seven-year-old. And I saw their, um, their profile photo on LinkedIn. And I was like, wow, they've grown up. Of course, you're trying to see the photo, you're trying to recognize. And you're like, it is. You can see that transformation. And I went out and said, do you want to catch up? I, I remember you know, your classes. I remember you know, I really enjoyed being in your class. Do you want to catch up? I caught up with him and his mum, who I used to drop him off every day for a coffee. And it was just really nice, Emily, to be able to, to see an adult who I had some small part in helping to shape. It was one of those really nice experiences. I feel like playing a small part is probably an understatement for the impact that you more than likely had. Yeah, we were pretty close, this student and I at the time. He was going through um, a family separation. And yeah, I had him for two years in my primary school classroom. And yeah, it, it, was, it was really nice seeing him. Amazing. So your research focuses on effective use of digital technologies. And we have leaders, you know, business leaders that would typically listen to this, probably because we're both coaches and, and you know, social entrepreneurs and that sort of thing. What's the role of, of using, of gaming and technology and building teams and, and helping people collaborate in your opinion. And, and really like imagining someone like, you know, like myself, that without that experience of seeing my eldest and the application of games would probably be kind of resistant to the idea because I have an antiquated notion of what gaming is. So, you know, any advice on, on how leaders can, can leverage these, you know, like technologies based on, you know, what you've learned and experienced and researched? Absolutely. Dave. One of those really interesting things is, we start off, of course, looking at the you know, social support for children, young adults part, but we've had so many business leaders and sub leaders who are interested in the employment part about working with neurodivergent people in the workplace. So we've spoken to Adobe, worked with Microsoft, and it's the idea of how can we take some of the things we've learned about working with autistic adults or neurodivergent adults and really help them to better create those conditions for inclusion in their workplaces or their startups and really build from strengths and interests. And one of the things that we uh, use as an organization is, is Discord, the chat server. I don't know if you've used Discord chat as our primary mode of communication. It's typically used for, for gaming, but we've sort of co-opted it as a business tool or a digital tool. Um, because you can do some really, really interesting things with uh, bots and servers that automate tasks. And it can make some of the executive functioning differences for people who are neurodivergent in terms of that planning and organization. It can be like a life hack. And we talk about this idea of universal design. So the idea of not just 
what works best for one particular group of people. It's essential. You know, those sort of supports are essential for autistic people, but they actually help everyone in the organization. And that's really where we've we've found those those connections with the startup world or the entrepreneurial world or the business world is how can we take what we've learned through that employment piece about how we support those those people and share that with with people who are looking to create those more inclusive workplaces or or business environments. So even the gaming part, even putting that aside for a second, even thinking about how we communicate with our staff, what types of communication tools we're using, the frequency of communication, and how we can use that to really make sure that everyone feels that they have an inclusive space in which to work has been really key. I've heard of Discord. I got to say, it's something I should learn more. Are you familiar with Discord, Emily? So I only heard the word Discord the other day, and I heard it because I was actually on a, a photo shoot for a, with a company, and there were a couple of people who were apparently much younger than I because they were talking about Discord, and I'm like, what is that? And the young man goes, well, your generation probably, and I'm like, my generation, like... <laughs> Again, it's like speaking of turning 40, Matt, I was like, wait a minute, don't I look like early twenties? <laughs> so no, I don't know Discord. <laughs> I'm always terrified, Emily. I, I still run the teen group. I, we have different groups for our next level collaboration. And we have a girls plus group, which is a safe space to go for if you're a female or non-binary dedicated group that's run by Jess, who thought it's really important to have a space. I'm terrified of going into that room and running our programs. Because they, they all will tell me that I look like their dad <laughs> because of the way I dress. <laughs> They're like, oh, I'll be having my, you know, university, you know, my, my university jumper or sweater and my shirt and you'll have your, your work pants, your slacks on. And Jess has got the cool funky hair and the tattoos and everything. And they're like, oh, Jess is really cool. When we grow up, we're going to be like, Jess. Matt, you remind me of my dad. And I was like, I'm not, I was like, I'm not that old. Then I figured like, I probably am that old. It only gets better when you hit 50, you guys. So just, just, I'll just oh, let you know. You, I'll just let you know. It's, but, but you know what? You're, you're going to be an edge up on me for sure, because at least you understand what everyone's using. Um, Cause that's the tr- That's the most challenging part. But I, I really like that idea of um, like, so, so my knowledge of discord, but how it could apply in a work setting Discord is is not only helping you know is helping everyone regardless of learning and and uh, and and thinking and cognitive abilities. It's really interesting because one of the questions that I'd often get people to ask, whether they're in a school or, or in a business community or wherever, if you wanted to to really find out how you can support through communication, people with communication differences, such as people who may who may be autistic or or have other neurological conditions is say, I'd ask them, so how do you communicate best? What do you think is a good system for communication? And it's that sort of surveying your community because we use, and I have many friends who work at Microsoft, so I should, should be very careful I phrase, we use Teams, which drives me bananas. And we also have Slack and we have all these different communication channels based on what team I'm on. And going to Discord was just a breath of fresh air because you have like a bit like Slack. If you use Slack, you have channels. It's the idea of death by email, trying to reduce the number of emails you get in your inbox. You know, I cough and I get 10 emails. You know, it's sort of like it's one of those things. I don't know if it's the same. Maybe it's different in Canada. I don't know. No, we have. Yeah, we have all of the above. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I am very unsavvy when it comes to any of that. (laughs) (laughs) But even just managing, I do find uh, as someone, I work full time now in the higher education sector at the University of Melbourne. It is that how you manage your inbox and changing to Discord through Next Level as something that I've tried to drag into the University of Melbourne saying, hey, this is a, a tool we could use that replaces three other tools. It's more inclusive because it's got a whole lot of accessibility functionality. It's something that would be quite well used by, I'd say, the next generation of academics. I'm trying not to use ageist labels, but as you said, Emily, sort of like down with the kids who are coming in who are coming into the university. It's something that I've been lobbying for is that, that switch because it does have a whole lot of things it can do and you can position it in, in really inclusive ways. The other thing as I as I was speaking, I was thinking before you asked about I guess inclusive technologies and what people can do was just actually training your staff and how to use the existing accessibility features within their tools because Software's gotten a lot more, more, lot more accessible. But a lot of those functions are actually turned off by default. And having someone who can come in and show you how to use the read aloud functions or screen magnification functions, you've got someone who has a visual impairment or is, is blind, how you can you know, have the auto captions on, like a Zoom meeting. Uh, the tools are built in. Just no one teaches you when you come into a workplace how to use them. It's not part of any induction I've been part of. And we've been trying to shift that, that that idea of what is an inclusive workplace? How can we, without spending any money, just explore what we've already got? And it is an excellent point, and it's a, something that I should really think about. But I, I have some friends. I have a friend that uses a walker. He has cerebral palsy. And another friend who's in a wheelchair. And I've become so conscious of physical spaces because where we meet for lunch or coffee, whatever, like, those, like, I mean, I would say, hey, let's meet at this one spot. And then like, Dave, um, you know, one of my friends would say like, that's it, not accessible. And I'm like, oh, you know, like, that's a very good point. It's got like five stairs to get up. Right. And, and so, but I've never thought of it in terms of the technology we use. So uh, yeah. Anyways, that's really, that's really helpful. That's really helpful. It is the idea of this universal design it actually comes from architecture. Talk about universal design. And it's the idea of why build stairs when you can build a ramp that everyone can use. And we think about universally designed communication tools or whatever your, your, your area of software, it's thinking of that exact analogy of what, is this a ramp or is this a stair? Right. Yeah. And so Matt, you have a book out as well, using video games to level up collaboration for students. Yes. We stumbled upon this idea of, you know, next level collaboration. And we kept getting asked, like, when are you coming to? And name any city in the world or country. And we said, oh, well, it's Jess and myself. We have nine people working with us. So probably, you know, one day we'd love to, you know, come to Scotland or come to Canada or come to South Africa or come to Egypt. But at the moment, so we thought, how can we share this knowledge? Because what really matters to us is how can we get it out there and how you can run these, these groups in schools? Or what we're found is also how you could run them in other contexts as well like you know even workplaces for example how could you run these inclusive gaming groups so i wanted to take my phd thesis and actually make it accessible non-academic speak i know this will shock you but um, academics probably aren't the best communicators sometimes it's funny we spend our whole life in one narrow niche 
and we kind of forget about how to, the importance of being able to communicate our research or or research to to people who haven't spent you know six years really looking at something in close detail. So I wrote the book really with that focus, making it accessible, primarily for teachers or allied health professionals. But I found people who are even at lunchtime in their organisations, the adults wanting to run these groups if they have neuroemergent staff or if they have any staff who just you know are new to an organisation. And, and they want to begin finding ways to build those social connections within their organization. Running those lunchtime gaming groups has been a really um, a big success for them. Amazing. Wow. And so for all of our listeners, how can everyone find you, reach out to you, learn more about you? Yeah. So I'm on Twitter, like, every, like a lot of other people. So I'm at Hat Designs. Uh, that's H A T T D E S I. G-N-S. You can find me on the University of Melbourne website, Dr. Matthew Harrison on Find an Expert at the University of Melbourne. And I'm on LinkedIn as well, Matthew Harrison. I'm the, the Matthew Harrison that's not the baseball player. I'm the Matthew Harrison who's in Australia. And, and what about someone who's interested in your book, Matt? Yeah, if you just uh, if you type in the title, if you, you say using video games to level up collaboration, it's available on Amazon, Booktopia, and a whole lot of other Routledge and a whole lot of other places as well. Amazing. Matt, thank you so much. So at the end of our uh, each episode, Dave and I do takeaways. So things that just kind of really stood out to us about the uh, about this conversation. So Dave, okay, let's hear yours. So a bunch of things resonated. Well, one is like for me to really consider um, those collaborative tools, technology, and how to use them more effectively. I start thinking like, who who are we missing out there in terms of clients and things just because some of the stuff we do isn't accessible. Um, so that's a really, that's a really profound kind of thought. You know, I gave it thought in a physical space, but I really have it as it relates to technology. So I appreciate that, Matt. And the other piece that about Matt's story is just kind of like this idea of, you know, you can connect the, the dots looking backwards, but just how teaching was kind of, you know, it's almost like you walk this path and you just discovered these things and then kept going. And kept going. And I just, I just love that. I appreciate you sharing that story because it helps us understand where you're at now and, and how that, that came about. And I guess what I mean by that is, is just being very open to, um, to, you know, what the experience is. And I just can't think of, you couldn't be further away from this policy guy, guru, to where you are now. And just when I think of that, the gap there through the experiences you had is, is the way I understand it and the way you, you share your story. So, so that's uh, a whole bunch of takeaways for me, Emily. Yeah, the same a lot. The, uh, I think this thing around how gaming can be such a social thing and in building that community. Yeah, a lot of key takeaways from that in that regard. And the same about just the universal design and making things accessible to everyone. And, but Matt, I got to say my biggest takeaway from this podcast is the power of talking with a smile on your face. And you are like, even like right at the beginning, I was thinking like, like how, like how are just some people so easy to engage with and you constantly 
have a smile on your face when you are talking. It is just so like palpable. I mean, I feel it all the way here in Canada and you're in Melbourne and uh, just, yeah, the power and just how we show up. And um, I think of just how many students have just been so positively impacted by you and will continue to be, and not just students, but then leaders and everyone just by you sharing your gifts of ultimately who you are. So thank you for that. And thank you for sharing yourself with us and um, with all of our listeners. Thanks for having me. And getting up so early and, and, and getting up so early. And showing up, <laughs> showing up in our future on a Friday when it's a Thursday afternoon here. So cool. Yeah. And so we will list all of Matt's information and any extras we discussed in our show notes. And the best place to find those is on our website at boilingpointpodcast.com. We are active on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter, and we will put the video versions on YouTube and Facebook. And of course, the podcast is available on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Thanks, Matt. Bye, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Follow or subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app or visit boilingpointpodcast.com for more. I'm Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app.